Welcome back to another episode of Sketch Nerds, brought to you by Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Here on Sketch Nerds, we break down sketch comedy. What works, what doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like, and why. Today, we're going to be discussing sketches from Monty Python and Mr. Show. You can find information about this podcast, as well as the sketches we are going to be discussing, at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Joining me, as always, are Julian Morgan and Seth Alcorn. I'm Andy Weld, and today we are happy to have returning guest, Jessica Randazzo. Oh, Jessica's well, still pregnant. Hi, guys. Jess, yeah, welcome back. Pregnant. Yeah. Oh. It's never ending. It's what it it's is. Never, what, what has been, what's the funniest part about being pregnant? The funniest part of being pregnant? Um... So hard to see the humor at this late stage. Movies would lead me to believe it's unexpected gas. <laughs> it's the it's the unexpected hormones and mm. uh, the transitions of just like pure rage and anger that then devolve into ridiculous pure horniness. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. Uh, ridiculous like tears and then like you know and then anger again. So it's great. It's really wonderful. It's also having everybody stop and stare at you. And uh, other mothers uh, say, "Oh, so you're 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 gonna have that baby soon?" And you say, "I have a month to go." And they say, "No, you don't." So that's, that's great. Just they know How your pissed. body better than you. They do. Yeah. They do. Mm-hmm. How pissed do you get when people say, "Oh, you're gonna pop any minute?" Yeah. No, it's horrible. Yeah. Um, that, that drives me nuts. And I'm not. I'm not even like you know. <laughs> people. Just Julian's not even pregnant at this point. <laughs> yeah. At this point anymore. That ship has yeah. sailed. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing our first sketch today is co-host Seth Alcorn. Uh, This is our second Monty Python sketch. Uh, So here we go. Brief introduction. Monty Python is perhaps the the ne plus ultra of sketch comedy. And since I don't actually speak Latin, I probably mispronounced that. And uh, it basically means that there's really nobody better. Um, Maybe it literally looks like that. No plus... Ultra, yes. No yeah, plus grade. No. Well, I yeah. think I think Seth was trying to recall the his time speaking Latin from oh, like, right. his, from his early childhood, his patrician days. Yes, yeah. that's right. When I <laughs> when Rome was a republic, <laughs> men all were real right men, women were real women, and we all tell ourselves a lie that it was better back then. It was not. Okay, oh, so Cicero. Here we go. <laughs> uh, Roman history references. Okay. Monty Python, though, started in 1969 by Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and Terry Gilliam. It ran for three full seasons and, following Cleese's departure, a truncated fourth season. While the six core members receive most of the attention, their co-star Carol Cleveland is largely overlooked. She and occasionally Connie Booth played all of the younger female characters. The core six went on to make four official Monty Python movies, and now for something completely different, which is just a rehash of some of the more popular sketches from the show, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, The Life of Brian, and The Meaning of Life. The impact of the Pythons on sketch comedy cannot be overstated. For example, Lorne Michaels used Monty Python to pitch Saturday Night Live to NBC. While SNL and Monty Python really only have the form of sketch comedy in common, the trademark absurdity of the Pythons found a home with that Mitchell and Webb look, Mr. Show, and a bit of Fry and Laurie, to name a few. I'll take a brief moment to note that the incredibly British style of absurdity favored by the Pythons had its roots in Beyond the Fringe and before that, The Goon Show, 
Um, and I say that it is incredibly British, even though Mr. Show is an American sketch group, but still has some of those things in common. But why don't we, uh, why don't we take a look at the sketch? All right, I confess I did it. I killed him for his reservation. <laughs> but you won't take me alive! <laughs> I'm going to throw myself under the 1012 from wedding. Don't be a fool, Tony. Don't do it. The 1012 has the new narrow traction bogeys. You wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> exactly. That was an excerpt from the latest West End hit, It All Happened on the 1120 from Hainault. To Red Hill via Horsham and Reigate, calling at Carlshalton Beaches, Malmesbury, Tootingbeck and Croydon West. The author is Mr Neville Shunt. Well, Seth, now that we've gotten a good look at that sketch over our audio waves, why don't you tell us why you uh, picked that sketch? Well, I picked that sketch um, partially because the sketch I picked last time from A Bit of Fry and Laurie, the uh, um, On Language and Truth and Beauty, uh, reminded me a little bit of the end of this particular sketch. Now, the beginning is just this really cheesy drawing room murder mystery. It plays as uh, a, a bad Agatha Christie um, and for some reason, everybody is making references to train times, uh, train stops, train maintenance, train, etc. And when you get beyond that, what you finally get is a very excitable and seemingly somewhat angry TV critic who is trying his best to make the whole train thing seem relevant, when, as we all know, in about the middle of the sketch, we find out that the person who wrote it is actually just obsessed with trains. And uh, Gavin Miller, Cleese's character, is trying to make it seem like it's high art when it's not. And I really just love that part of it where there's this sort of, again, academic ease uh, buzzword word salad of Cleese trying to explain why this um, play is actually really good. These wordy sketches you bring in, I, I love them because I, I can't, uh, I just, I, I can never do this. Um, but um, I, I wondered, like, is the whole beginning, the murder scene, is that just that whole scene just to set up John Cleese? Frankly, I think so. There's some good bits. Um, but let's see. The uh, has he been? Yes. After breakfast is like pure musical. Right. That's just a, that's just a yes. We're making a bathroom joke real quick. Um, I think if if anything, Michael Palin is actually the best part of that sketch. Uh, just his extremely over-the-top pretending to be innocent. You can tell that it's his character is totally the one who's committed the murder. Uh, and then the moment when he's caught and that take he does to the camera before saying damn is actually just really beautiful. But if other than that, there's really nothing, there's really nothing going on. That sketch makes no sense without somebody coming in and trying to make sense of it later. I actually disagree with that. Ah, yeah. I do as well. All right. I disagree with that because... Um, Monty Python like started and uh, and and their their roots in everything was just kind of like anger and outrage at the system in England and just like you know just how it how society was and how outrageously absurd things like the commentator of course mm. at the end trying mm. to make sense of all that but they I mean this is their society that they're talking about and there is something to be said for the fact that two things that British people love to talk about our weather and the trains. Like there's the the trains, like, I mean, we are not familiar as much 
with uh, mass transit being like an actual thing that people do outside of cities in America. But in England, they crisscross everywhere and you can take them all over the place. And it's a real thing. And the tube is one thing, but like trains across the country and from one town to another. And people do know like the times and this, that, and the other and, and, and the timetables. And there are serious train aficionados <laughs> in the country, of course, like the writer um, of the, uh, what was his name again? Uh, the well, author of the sketch. The author, Neville oh, Neville Shunt. Shunt. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, uh, it, uh, but I think it, it, it's that absurdity too is the fact that they really felt like people like this existed where there were people who would find a dead body and instead of doing something about father on the ground, on the carpet, yeah. would talk about the train schedules instead and and what a pity and and that all speaks to the the crazy oppression of british emotions in a situation like that too which i can say because i am half british and my mother is british so i know these things to be true much in the way that julian is half black and half mexican jess is half half british British. so it's about the same kind of thing it's very ethnic yeah. very ethnic mince pies are at real a, thing. at a time she could say the n-word too <laughs> yeah uh, yes well at that time we could all say the n-word <laughs> uh yeah i i, I do want to yeah there, there so are there actually is that a few. level to it you yeah. know like i i see what you're saying with it all but i feel like there's a level there too with the they they go so deep because it's it's a real thing that people would find like, there's a few Monty Python train yeah. sketches. There's more than yeah. well, there's definitely a train spotting one, and I, I want to say there's something else that I can't think of right now. But yeah, they they take uh, they take shots at the train folks mm-hmm. more than once. Yeah, yeah. and someone also to speak to like just Britishness. Uh, the one thing that kind of the one thing I was able to track, and then I was able to like sort of divide that out, and then track another uh, another a line of jokes is that it's like missing your appointment is like worse than death, and that seems like yeah. a British thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is it's, that well, true, Jess? Am I allowed yeah, to say that? Did, it's be, Yeah, I don't know that you are actually, <laughs> okay? Being rude. That's mm. cultural appropriation, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So, um, uh, yeah, but it, it, it is speaking to the, this, this like, the literal, like, anger and outrage that the troop had for, like, the upper class and, like, the... the which the, which the, is weird because most of them were, but... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They all came from, but, um, like, the academic and everything, but it was, it, it was um, something that they, it was... It's just something that, that would would not be surprising that they would uh the absurdity of, you know, the the train schedules over the murder and uh that being like an actual thing that people would feel and and feel real about, you know, watching that at that time. Let's uh talk about repetition. Yes. Um because the crux of this sketch is essentially repetition, not necessarily of the same word, but of the train times and just the train thing. Repeated over and over again, what makes repetition funny and why isn't it boring and what's the difference between good repetition and bad repetition? Answer all those questions at once, Seth. I'm going to fall back on what I always (laughs) like to fall back on, context. Repetition is funny. Um, Repetition is funny when Ben Stein does it in Ferris Bueller's Day, uh, Day Off. Repetition is funny in this sketch. Uh, repetition is funny. Again, Family Guy, I, he seems to have found the secret of making repetition go through the valley of not being funny back into the, the hills of being funny again. I think it's funny, maybe, because it highlights the absurdity of doing it in the first place. There's a saying, and I can't recall who, uh, who it's attributed to, 
but uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Um, Cicero. Cicero. It was Cicero. It was Cicero. Uh, For those of you listening at home, Cicero actually means chickpea. Anyway, um, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that somehow, I, I think the joke here is that the writer of the play and like showing him at all is a punchline, but the setup is the repetition of the train times meant to carry some sort of emotional weight in this small excerpt of this play that we're seeing. I yeah. think the repetition is is funny as well because every every time it happens it's from a different character. So every every time there's somebody else who comes through the door and and it's it's like the it's like the French farce idea of it all, you know, the the bag Agatha Christie mm. where as soon as someone's done saying their piece, someone else comes through, storms through the door, you know, and the the fact that like the the inspector got there so quickly and yeah, you know, and that, by the way, that is true of any time there is a policeman in a Monty Python sketch. They are always there immediately after something happens, and they are always so and so of the yard. Uh, in fact, there's another there's another drawing room murder mystery sketch that's that where that's the punchline. But yeah, that's the reason I think Terry Jones, who's the inspector, gets that gets a bigger laugh because we've been dealing with these people as a family, and we're yes. like, okay, this is maybe a weird family quirk, and then. Again, Eric Idle's like, you got here awfully quickly. And Terry Jones is like, well, yes, I came in the blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, Trains on the brain. Yeah. But I, I think this is like kind of, so repetition, you see a lot of repetition in like list sketches. And this is what, this is a list sketch. And what, what it does, what I like about it is that like, there's like two to three lists going on at the same time. And so like with repetition, so basic joke, basic joke writing and joke telling and bits and stuff like that. What? You want to do like a good a good joke and a good bit, and of course, there's always you know deviations, whatever. But what you want to do is create create an expectation and then subvert it, and that's when the audience will get the laugh. For repetition, you create an expectation, and the audience thinks you're going to subvert it, but you just keep going. And so it's so, a good that's subvert a good the subversion, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so that and and that's what this whole sketch is about, really. Is that they're subverting like British society, like you say. And then they're also just they're they're subverting their own sketch. They're like kind of making fun of themselves a little bit, but because they go at the end to try and explain what this whole sketch was. Um, and Which then is really hard to do for the most part. Generally, trying yeah. to put in commentary in your own sketch is yeah. something that that rarely plays very well. There was actually a, there was a there's an attempt a bad medicine attempt to do that that we've talked about a little bit before. But somebody wrote a sketch and then I wrote a sketch explaining it, and none of those sketches ever saw the light of a stage. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we, we we performed those sketches a couple of times. I want to did say. we? Okay, I, I, I remember I, specifically mm-hmm. being in that sketch okay. where we had to explain it. Yeah, and I thought it got laughs. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, but really quickly, just to carry on with the theme of repetition, mm. uh, John Cleese's monologue at the end, where it's it's the the humor is carried on the fact that he keeps stressing the point, the ambiguity, uh, and to a lesser extent the word elk, and to a much greater extent the uh, French writer La Fontaine, and the box too, and the box, and the box. It, yes, right, yeah. the ambiguity is in the box. Uh, the box is in the corner. It, yeah, it's it's just that's where Beyonce got that actually. The box to the left. She got it from Monty Python. She, I'm sure she did. Yeah, I'm yeah he, absolutely. He did sure point that to she his did. left as he was going through that. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, so like the but the the way they track. So the getting back to the list thing too. It's like how they track. What the way that I kind of sort of decide, dissected is they 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 list three to me. I guess three different things. Where it's the the time of trains, the kind of car you get depending on what day or what 
time you get the train. And then it ends up being important later in, in that specific sketch where the, if the guy can't commit suicide, if he doesn't hit the right train. Yeah. Um, and then um, the father, uh, n- like not being able to, well, the, the, the father uh, not canceling his reservation, reservation before he kills himself. Yeah. 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 It's or, the gun. Yeah. 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 So they, they both, hi- they both, all those, all three of those things heighten individually, but they also come together in a really smart way that's super fast. And so, like, I, I just like wonder how you guys think about like, couldn't like, w- would it be f- even more fun to slow it down, like, uh, slow down their delivery of the lines, slow down the pacing of how they're acting and moving and stuff like that to really show these different sections? Or is it just this whole thing is just a clusterfuck that we're gonna get to next? It's a runaway train. Yeah. What it is? Oh, oh yeah. shit! Yeah. What? What? Yeah. 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 <laughs> See, I I wouldn't even describe it as as a clusterfuck. Uh, I think it just goes by, um, I think it's very organized, but organized chaos. It's speed. And I think the speed adds so much to it, both in the first section of the drawing room murder mystery and in the second section with the speed of John Cleese's monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and really the thing is that the drawing room, the actual, the action of the drawing room murder mystery for the time it takes moves relatively slowly. The speed is in the information about the trains, which is just uh, rattled off at a quick clip, which I think is probably a train pun, and I didn't mean that, but there we go. Well, it, it, it that tends to happen. Yeah. One thing to touch on in that first part of the sketch, and again in the second part of the sketch, is the economic standing of the characters. We're looking at all of these characters, with the exception of the writer, who we get the sense is maybe more impoverished based on the room he's presented in. All these characters are seemingly high class, high society. Even the police inspector comes off as high class and high society. When you're writing a sketch, Julian, let's start with you. When you're writing something, do you ever consider the class of your characters or is it just kind of, or do you just start with a character or a premise and, you know, class doesn't enter into it much? How does class at all play into your writing? Um, I, 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 never, I never think about it, but... I, I would put it in if it served the comedic the comedic idea. So like the comedic idea is this the central the central joke that I'm trying to get across throughout the sketch. And so the premise, if if I actually actually I did I did write a high class sketch where um well I'm in the process of writing it. Uh, <laughs> where <laughs> lots the, of syllables, yeah. lots of big words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just way out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, no, but um but it's it's it like does it serve the comedic idea? Um, so can can you do this sketch um, with people who are in in a, in a lower class? I think I don't. Know, I'm not sure you can because like I think. Well, I think also too. It's 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 part of them. Like there's, I'm trying to figure out the there's like a there's a there's a phrase for it, but it's like you don't you only make fun of going up. You only you, you don't know punch you down. don't punch. There down. we go. You don't punch down. I knew it was. Prego brain, I'm telling you, you don't punch down, and that's the thing too. I mean, that was that, that was that was big with Monty Python. Is that like that's what they're doing? They're making fun of like high class society, and in England, the class structure is still real. So punching down is when you just, in case you don't know what punching down is, punching down is when you uh, basically make jokes at someone who is less fortunate or in a lower position than you. Um, or then the sketch is in, and it's it's generally a, a sign of of poor writing. Yeah, um, it's not funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it 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 makes you look like an asshole 
and not funny. It's why you can make a lot of fun of everybody in the White House and the president of the United States because that's like the top echelon. We have avoided being political. For <laughs> no, we haven't. Eight, well, <laughs> no, no, we haven't. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. No, Seth, but that's, I, I don't think, I think that that's, that's something that like is present in a lot of Monty Python sketches that like for them, class structure was a real thing. And uh, in England still, I think sometimes it's not as much, but you used to not be able to, like at that time, you could not be a presenter on television or like a newscaster or anything unless you spoke like the Queen's English. And now you can you can be from any part of England, Wales, Ireland, whatever, have any kind of accent or come from any kind of neighborhood and and still and and be somebody like that. But then literally there were there were doors shut to you if you spoke differently, if you had a different accent than the upper class. So yeah. that's part of it. I think the class also plays towards their ultimate joke with the second half, with John Cleese's part, is that, like, would John Cleese's character be would he dissecting oh, yeah, yeah. A, a play that was written about poor people? Yeah, uh, that's, a good, yeah. that's a good question. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get to final thoughts. Any other ideas? We, we've, been, we've been plowing through this at a good clip. Any, uh, any things people would change? Jess? No. No. No, I'm I'm really okay. bad with the change. No. <laughs> so <laughs> come back to me. <laughs> All right, Julian. Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually change anything, you know, because like the the whole sketch is like the whole joke is pointlessness is the point, and so there's there's so there there it's it's self referential humor. They're, like even John Cleese's part at the end of John Cleese's part, they have the other guy saying, uh, "John Cleese was not talking about the writer Neville Shutt." Just like so, like basically, his whole point was pointless too. Like he was just rambling about something crazy, and so like I I, th- I think it all worked. Even the part where they have the crazy, where you see Neville Shunt just like typing away and like doing crazy shit with trains. Like it, <laughs> it, it 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 all made sense to me once I like sat down and like really thought about it. Yeah, I I really I really enjoyed this sketch as well. I I frankly. Uh, enjoyed the first part the most. I, I I would have been happy with just seeing the train part of the sketch. This the second part adds a lot to it, and I get it. But I also would have been quite content with just the uh, train themed drawing room murder mystery. And Seth, the, yeah. sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to throw it to Seth. So I'll oh, throw it to I you was going to just say that. Yeah, you could you could just end the sketch there. It's absurd enough. You know what I mean? But I think that's a. I, and talking to like the speed of everything that they were doing before. And I mean, as an actor, I mean, like with John, first of all, memorizing those lines must have been really <laughs> challenging, but um, with the timetables and everything. But John Cleese, I wonder if that was more at the end that he had rehearsed certain things and then could just ramble, certain, you know, like, or if that was legitimately. Was it written or was it improvised? Written. It's, it's written. Really? Yeah. I, the I, whole. When I was when I was a wee lad of twelve, my parents gave me the complete Monty Python script. It's nice. A, yeah, those are good parents, right there. <laughs> yes, they they didn't know what they were doing. No, but yeah. what what is great about that and the speed and and what he does is Monty is Monty Python. I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of comedy. I mean, there's a variety of comedy out there, and isn't that what's great about the world? But Monty Python like did not speak down to anybody. They asked you to like stand up and pay attention. And like you, you've got to pay attention to that sketch. You've got to listen to what they're saying. And it's kind of raising the discourse. You know, they don't expect, they expect you to be able to follow what they're saying. You know what I mean? And there's, there's kind of a, and for that, and for the, the teenagers and 20 somethings of that time period, 
you must have felt somewhat superior because like your parents didn't get it, you know, Monty Python. And, you know, they were like, oh, this is horrible. And you were like, yeah, but I'm smart enough to get it, you know? And I think that that's part of Monty Python's charm too at the time. Yeah. Seth, your final thoughts? Oh. um, Or continue with Jess? I would, uh, I would actually just say final thoughts about the sketch. I wouldn't change much. uh, If anything, this might become a theme over the next few shows. I would cut the Neville Shunt part a little bit. I, I don't think we needed to spend quite as long with Neville Shunt. I think a couple of click clicks on the typewriter and a woo woo and a bell clang would have been enough. But uh, yeah, I just uh, and for me, like the the back half of that sketch really makes it what it is. The the train drawing room murder mystery is fine. It's it's funny enough, but uh, John Cleese trying to analyze it is um, pretty great. This podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy troupe Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Uh, visit badmedicinecomedy.com for info about live shows, workshops, t-shirts for people who love comedy, and people for t-shirts. I think that's important. Find, find, find t-shirts for, find people for t-shirts. This episode's second sketch comes to us from Mr. Show with Bob and David. Mr. Show with Bob and David was a sketch show uh, that ran for four seasons on HBO from 1995 to 1998. Created by David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, the show specialized in the absurd and borrowed a technique from Monty Python in which sketches rarely have a hard end and usually blend into one another. The writing staff of Mr. Show featured a number of talented writers that would go on to great success, including Sarah Silverman, Jack Black, Tom Kenny, Scott Ackerman, and Paul F. Tompkins. This sketch features commercials from dueling grocery stores. Here's a clip. Farm Fresh Eggs, two fifteen a dozen. And unlike some places, you'll always find apples. That's the Fairsley difference. We've got apples. We've got apples. Look, we've always had apples. So how is that a difference? It's not. Uh, this week at Gibbons Markets, with any purchase you make, you'll receive an apple for free. I think my favorite thing about this sketch is how sad David Cross is. Yeah. <laughs> As his... Sorry, Seth. I just want to interrupt. Uh, there have been... This is the second Mr. Show sketch, and we both picked sketches where David Cross just gets increasingly emotional about something. Also, you guys seem to be competing. With yes. each other. Well, I mean, that's a part of it. That's that's the yeah. undercurrent of this uh, of this podcast. All great comedy, all great art comes from conflict, and that's what this is. So we're going to see who can bring the deepest cut of both Mr. Show and Monty Python, and we can't do that anymore. It's going to be that Mitchell and Webb look. You guys are just going to end up just like brawling on the. <laughs> this and, and, and be it, the Jess and Julian show. <laughs> this it's whole conversation, plan. it's Seth sabotaging my sketch. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, it's great as David Cross becomes more and more upset as these dueling commercials bring him down further and further as these commercial, as the commercials from the kind of big box grocery store chain drive his mom and pop shop out of business and his, his increasing sadness is so great. And it's something we've talked about before David Cross does so well. It's these kind of 
the it's one of my favorite things in sketch comedy and anyone who's written or worked with me before has heard me describe the descent into madness and that is like my favorite thing to have characters do i like when characters start together and end a sketch broken uh and this just like life in this sketch. right just like life <laughs> just like Holmes. right <laughs> oh no <laughs> okay uh but let's let's talk about the structure of the sketch for a second so it's dueling commercials and the commercials are in communication with each, with each other. They reference one another yes. to the most part. For the most part, though, it's uh, David Cross's um, uh, Gibbons Market responding to these accusations that are kind of uh, indirectly lobbed at them by uh, Fairsley, which is the other grocery store. So how does this kind of commercials in communication add to the sketch rather than just two back-to-back commercial parodies? Seth? I think it's funnier because Fairsley is not listening to Gibbons. Uh, it is it is always Gibbons responding to Fairsley, and in a in a kind of a sort of a defeated before he starts desperate attempt to refute Fairsley's increasingly outlandish allegations. Uh, just like the first one is, and uh, we've never had a rat. Uh, and then Gibbons is like, oh, what? No, uh, I don't, I don't know what that's in reference to. I don't know why you'd be, you'd be talking about that. And it's, it's, it's funnier to me because later on, I believe in the series, they did the mustard mayonnaise combinations. Uh, and that was heightening because the combinations got ever, ever, ever weirder as they went along. And this is heightening because David Cross's character, Len Gibbons is doing worse and worse over time. Although, again, since we're not given a timeline, I like to imagine that this is happening in about an hour. Yeah, it, it, I think that's the sense that you get from the sketches. It's all crumbling very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, with the diminishing grocery stores and now Great 15 yeah, every time. locations. <laughs> every now time. in three exclusive right. locations. Just such a great, <laughs> such a great sight gag. What, and what, what, what um, really, I, th- I think what, 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 what's, what's really great about uh, David Cross's descent is that Throughout throughout each attack, he's like trying to double down on the fact that he has like ties to the community, and so like like he'll even in the the thir- the, the third beat, which is where he gets the um the uh, security the the, 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 the collar yeah 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 the, <laughs> on the, the security kid. for the yeah because <laughs> like that's like the the one where it's like this is really expensive, but this is how far I'm willing to go. Oh, the the so, security like, cameras yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's like broken as he delivers it. He's like I this really. Really expensive. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Spend so much money really, on yeah. it. And then and they show the kid getting no kid the collar. No kid has ever been. Yeah. And it's and he what, he says something like um what does he say uh something about it being ra- radio it's like if they the collar uses radio waves or something yeah. like that because like that seems safer to, for the kids <laughs> like you won't get cancer. Well, and what's great is at the end of that whole thing, this whole t- spiel about the security system, he very sadly says. Squash is on sale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's- He still makes the pitch. He's still trying to be the grocery man. The grocer, I suppose, would be the word there. Yep. Um, but then we never we never see inside of Farsley's. Or yeah, Farsley's. We see none, none of the inside totally of Farsley's. It's a beautiful facade. Not beautiful. Except for, yeah. what you do see, isn't, isn't that the inside of Farsley's when you see the diaper? The guy yeah, in the when they are directly mocking uh, Glenn. That's the only Glenn time they're, like, they're, yeah, they're responding to it. Yeah, is is that? But there is something to be said for it being this just like this no face, beautiful, pristine 
like corporation and then he's the only one that's like talking back like you said you yeah. know and yeah. and just and being more the human like the more side of like uh, the relatable person that you would relate to you know than this corporation that is large and yeah it's like Walmart charge. versus Glenn Libbins well exactly. and that's the thing is that it, it really is like it's a it's a satire of consumerism it's like here's this guy he's got roots in the community but you want to get that extra 40 cents off at, uh, you know, on the cereal or whatever it is. So Yeah, and, and let's talk about that a little bit. Let's tell the, the writing angle with that. As we, as we joked before, conflict is an underlying part of a lot of, as a lot of, of a lot of humor. Um, and this is clearly you have your, your mom and pop store. It's grown to some degree if it's got 23 stores at the yeah. beginning. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite a mom and pop stop. But mom and pop local store versus mega chain. And- Julian, when you're writing something, how do you tap into cultural consciousness of a conflict to be able to communicate an idea that's universal or communicate a setup that's universal? Yeah, this kind of goes back to like, uh, uh, you know, like 10th grade English where you kind of learned the different levels of conflict. So like the, this, this conflict would be like man versus society. So it, it's... Is it man versus society or man versus man? I, like you, you, you can play, I, you can play both of those. But I, I, I kind of see Fairsley's as like the faceless kind of like Walmart. Yeah, that, 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 that's just how it appealed to me. But that could We're also sponsored by Target. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> fucking bad medicine. All right, no. <laughs> uh, but like you, like you create that conflict by having a theme that's kind of universal, and then make it personal for those characters, and so. You go wide to tight. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to sort of piggyback on that a little bit, um, 1995 through 1998 was the rise of the big box store. Like, it's, I mean, we we had, Walmart obviously existed before that, and we had department stores, Kmart, Sears, blah, 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 blah. But in this time period, you got uh, Borders and Barnes and Noble being big box bookstores, which had never existed before. You got Super Kmart's. Um, you got Walmart showing up outside of their traditional area in the United States. Uh, Best Buy is replacing Circuit Cities, that kind of thing. So, it, it, yeah, it matters the context of those kinds of things, like a historical context. When you when you look at something like this for the first time now, those are the kinds of things that you kind of have to keep in mind. You know what I mean? It's interesting. I mean, it it plays into like a whole different thing of like what is gonna last in terms of comedy, you know, like 50 years later, is this still going to be funny? Because there's certain cultural context things that may not be like, it's not Saturday Night Live, like this week relevant, but it is relevant to the society at the time. So it's interesting to think about that. I mean, it's still sort of like, it's still, I think, relevant today because we're still living in a late stage capitalism society. Anyway, (laughs) moving on. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) And he just, oh, good. Rome's not going to go down this road. I just, all I said was late stage capitalism. I didn't say anything else. That phrase on its own. Let's go to the The, next. No, no. uh, (laughs) um, It's the bit at the end, really, Fairsley's golden promises are below the bare minimum of what you would expect walking into any establishment. They are, they are promising, essentially, not to set you on fire. Yeah, our stores are not constantly <laughs> not on fire. Yeah, exactly. It's That's like, okay, great. That's a golden promise. Thanks, Fairsley. On the end of this sketch, in, you know, as I noted, Classic Mr. Show and Monty Python did it as well. There's not a real button to this sketch. You have, like, 
totally downtrodden um, Len Gibbons uh, at the end. Um, but there's not really a joke that closes it. You have the passerby who goes, walks into the next sketch. Is there a way they could have buttoned this that would have made it more satisfying as a standalone piece? Or as uh, as Seth has noted, is the context of it being Mr. Show enough that we say, you know what? That is how this sketch should have ended. It should have ended on a soft transition into the next thing. Or is there something that you could have done differently at the end? Jess? Uh, well, I liked how they it went to the, you know, the did the the past, like where it went back to the past. And he's having like this conversation, which which is weird because like obviously like as a child, he has yet to fail his grandfather in the like it's a weird kind of <laughs> a time loop kind of a thing. But uh I like that ending instead of just him being on the cart, going back to like this is all he was trying to do was to live up to his families and then it and then it just didn't. It never happened and he failed him. So, well, well, and him on the cart at the end, there's the question of who was shooting this commercial of the man on the cart at the end? <laughs> that's you know, a good he, point. I didn't look and, at and, it like yeah, that. And that's something that you think about when you're doing something like that. Is, Once in a while. Why is this happening? Yeah. Well, because it's good. Because he's got his pride. Yeah. He's got his pride. Throws the potato on the yeah. ground. It's good times. Yeah. Finally, for thoughts? me, it was kind of like there was, for me, there was like two endings. The him saying, well, it's over. And he throws the potato and he's like, and then all of a sudden he's just a weird aside where he's like, but people were, I don't know, more straightforward, just like my grandfather. And then there's a second ending where the grandfather's like, it's over, you failed. But Shut they up. lied. Yeah. They lied. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, and that's the linking sketch or the links themselves are always really surreal. They're always, it's a way to get from one idea to another idea, but it only works in the world of the sketch that they built. But in terms of button thoughts, I did have one. It's pretty dark. Go for it. <laughs> uh, we cut away. Um, you know, Fairsley's is something like, and we're not we're not uh, some old dude uh, selling groceries out of the back of his truck. We cut back. Len Gibbons is dead. We see him buried. And on the way out, we see a sign that says, Glen Oaks, a Fairsley cemetery. And then, so, I like they that. took it's everything. Dark, but I like that they exactly. Took yeah. They took everything from him. Everything. Yeah. Uh, one more question, Seth. Uh, David Cross was probably in his mid thirties when they made this, but he's playing a man in his sixties, probably. Mm-hmm. When you're playing an older character, is there something specific that you go for to capture that kind of sense of the elderly? Is it just thinking like? How do I imagine elderly stereotypes? Or are there certain things that you tap into and think about to play an older character or a younger character? It applies anyway. Um, how much is stereotype in, in it? How much is it stereotype and how much is it something else? It depends on the show. Uh, I tended to play a lot of older characters, but that was usually in a context where not everybody else uh, was supposed to be that old. And if it was funny, then yes, you lean into stereotypes. And I almost always start with vocal quality for characters. So the way David Cross is using his voice is much more indicative of an older character than a younger character. Um, But it it really depends. If you're doing, if you're playing an older character in a drama, you'd better hope that everybody else is also playing older characters because otherwise it's it's just not going to work. If you're playing an older character in a comedy, uh, nobody really cares. Let's uh, let's do final thoughts. Things we'd change at all, Julian. 
Um, this is a small thing, I guess. Um, it's so the the beats of the sketch where it's the first time that so Bearsley's on the attack. Um, we we like we establish uh, David Cross's character, and then the first attack is uh, we don't have rats, and then David Cross is like we don't I don't, I don't know what that's in reference to. Then the next one is apples, like we always have apples. And I was like that seems kind of off. And then David Cross is like we have, we have free apples, you know. And so, like, and then the, and then it goes to the like abduction. So, like, like that whole that 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 kind of the apples kind of me was like a misfire. It, yeah, it does feel like th- those first yeah. two threats may have been it may seem a little out of order. I felt I felt that as well, Seth. Uh, I was just gonna say, and I'll jump in with my final thought. I I, I honestly would not change anything uh, about the sketch. I don't think it, it needs to be changed. The thing about the apples, I don't think the thing about the apples works if you put it first. I think we need to see them respond to the rat, and then. That nervousness, the fact that he is now losing stores, is what gives Fairsley, or not Fairsley Gibbons, the 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 need to be like, no, we've got apples. You can have a free apple with every purchase. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. I feel like you can do the apples line and still say, I don't know what that's in reference to, uh, and then do the rat line and have it be more a little more, also like a, yeah, a, a little more. Um, I think it's funny that the afraid. the rat line comes first though because. It is like absurd because in the beginning it's this regular commercial for Fairsley, and then all of a sudden we don't have rats, and then it goes back to him, and it's like I, I, which is hilarious because like you said, it seems like it's happening so, like quickly, and it's it's almost like you know he's seeing the commercial and then he's like and recording a new one immediately, yeah. and uh, but it, and it takes him off guard, but it is that like. A to C, A to D, you know what I mean? Like it's the thought process that goes like one step further instead of just this like banal, slow, like poke into bankruptcy. (laughs) The slow poke. (laughs) Into bankruptcy. Just any other (laughs) final thoughts? Uh, No, David Cross is great. If he's not doing this, then he's like evil. I feel like there's there's two David Crosses. There's vulnerable and crying and – my daddy didn't love me, so I'm going to ruin the world. Like, those are the two David Crosses. Or on stage, the hyper-political David Cross. There you go. Always Too foodie. Okay. References. Uh, for me, I, I really like that sketch. I think I I prefer sketches that, um, that have a button. I wish there was some kind of harder ending to this. Uh, I know how hard it is to do that. I struggle with it myself. Um, but I do like when there's something that can be done to create a firm end. Like, maybe if there was a really strong clap or something. All right, it is time to uh, give a rating to the sketches we talked about today. Jess, since you're the guest, I'm going to ignore you and ask Seth (laughs) to come up with a rating system for the sketches that we uh, talked about today. Well, I think the best rating system I could possibly give is uh, it's going to be 23 out of 23 local grocery stores. (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. All right, let's start off with uh, Mr. Neville Shunt, railroad playwright. Jess, how many out of 23 grocery stores? Local grocery give? stores. Local, yes, that's true, local grocery local stores. Local grocery stores. Um, I think I would give it um, an 18 because I expect a lot out of Monty Python, and Monty Python is fantastic. And while I, I really enjoyed this sketch, there, there are so many others to me that like, I really enjoyed the sketch and, and, but it's, uh, I think there's just different levels that I respond to and different things about Monty Python, but 18 out of 23, that's it's not bad. pretty good. Not bad at all. Julian? 
Uh, I'm gonna give it one local grocery store <laughs> because Brutal. because the the more it. the more I look at this sketch, the more I like it, and the more I I, I prefer big chains. <laughs> <laughs> The more I think about and local something mom and like that things, was coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. I would give it. I think it's really good. I'd give it twenty out of twenty-three local grocery stores. Seth, I'm actually going to give it twenty-two out of twenty-three. Wow. I'm going to give it twenty-two out of twenty-three. I think just making Neville Shunt's bit shorter would have been right there, right in the sweet spot. Wow. Nice, firm, firm, and high praise. And how about for the Fairsley difference? Uh, which is the name of that of the Fairsley sketch? I'm not sure we actually mentioned it at any point. It's called the Fairsley Difference. Um, uh, Seth, how many local grocery stores would you give the Fairsley Fairsley Difference? Twenty three out of twenty three. Wow. Yep. Wow. High praise. High, High praise. praise indeed. Mm-hmm. Julian. Um. Fuck. I don't know. Let me give it. <laughs> I'm gonna give it 18 local grocery stores. It, it, it I thought it, it, yeah, it was good. It was a good sketch. You can just give it 18. You don't need yeah. to explain everyone. Fuck. You Sometimes know what? it's just Fuck 18. These listeners, they're not listening to our <laughs> shit. <sighs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> listeners. No, we like you. you. Please subscribe. Please. Rate us on iTunes. Please keep please. validating me. Please. And when we start our eventual Patreon, contribute to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's coming next. Get excited. Just how many local grocery stores do we give this sketch? Oh gosh. Um I'm going to give it uh 17 and a half because I not that you can compare sketches but uh that is entirely what we're doing right now. I'm just <laughs> no I'm just saying like they're different there. I mean but like but nobody the uh, Monty Python these are these are my it's there's a special place right in here. I'm not going to tell Next you where I'm baby? pointing. Yes. Um. <laughs> where Monty Python lives. I just put headphones on the baby and on my stomach, and he's, he listens to all the Monty Python sketches. Um, uh, so, yeah, 17. I'm going to go with 17. 17. Yeah. All right. Uh, for me, I think I would give it – you know what? I'm going to give it 19 because I liked uh, I liked the railroad uh, railway timetable playwright sketch better. So, Seth, another leg up on me. Um is That's that a dog reference? Is not a- intentional. <laughs> well, you know, it it could be a dog reference. Could be. It yeah. could. I don't know. I don't know what's a, what it's a reference to. <laughs> we'll let the listener decide. <laughs> the listener that we love. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Sketch Nerds. A special thanks to our returning guest, Jessica Randazzo, uh, for being on today's show. <laughs> Please like, share, and subscribe. If you have a sketch that you're interested in us breaking down, please send it to us. We'd love to do that. You can find out more about Sketch Nerds and Bad Medicine at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds, where you can also find links to the sketches that we discussed today. You can find this podcast and previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. For Jessica, Seth, Julian, I'm Andy. Thanks for listening to Sketch Nerds. Also, for future guests, can you just tell us beforehand how to say your name so we can avoid awkward breaks? <laughs> yeah, I breaks. got it wrong two in a row. Two shots fired. Two, maybe this is just me not asking mere seconds years. before the show begins. Two years, Andy. Two years. I feel two like years. I've been saying We've it the friends. right way the entire time. I think so. It's your ethnicity. See, you recognize the ethnicity in me. Uh, yeah, the British. <laughs> This episode was produced by Isaiah Hedden and recorded in Washington, D.C. The closing music tracks were provided by SoundtrackForEverything.com. 
All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act, Fair Use Exemption, for criticism and commentary. The Sketch Nerds podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy group Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. For showtimes, videos, and funny t-shirts, please visit badmedicinecomedy.com.